0: I've really been thinking in my own um, practice and contemplations so much about this question of happiness. That's why I began my talk last time about happiness and how we often don't know how to find happiness because this culture hasn't been very good at teaching us that. In fact, it, it actually tries to reinforce this delusion that there's something out there that can make us happy. And as as I said, this has been kind of a theme that I've been thinking on a lot uh, during this retreat. And just this past Sunday, in our local paper, the cartoon section, here was another example. This is Sherman's Lagoon, which if you know it is an underwater setting where there's a a a big fat shark and a mouthy crab and a few other characters but this particular one, it's the crab who's Hawthorne, and the shark who's uh, Sherman, who, as I said, is kind of a bit of a blob. He sits around a lot, not a very realistic shark. But <laughs> the crab is saying to the shark, what are you up to today, fat boy? And the shark just says, nothing. Nothing? Doesn't that bore you? And Sherman says, not me. I'm happy sitting here doing nothing. And the crab says, you know what makes me happy? Helping others lead more productive lives. And Sherman says, well, it looks like we have conflicting happies. And the crab, you need to find a deeper happy. And the shark says, and you need to take your happy and just keep right on walking. (laughs) Crab, your happy should always be a little out of reach. That's what keeps us going. It's the pursuit of happiness. And Sherman says, but I found it already. And the crab says, but there's a bigger happy out there somewhere. Crab, sure, you're happy sitting there, but what would make you happier? Sherman, the shark, sitting here eating a crab. (laughs) (laughs) The crab, my happy just took off, got to go as he rises off. (laughs) And we can laugh when it's sort of pointed out so obviously, but this is a message we always get, is that somewhere out there, if we just kept moving, if we were a little busier, a little more productive, a little more on top of things, we would find this happiness that is posited as out there somewhere. But all of our practice is really about finding that that is not true, that it's not out there. And to to actually know that um, it's somewhere much closer than we might think, and that it's often counterintuitive. We, I, I, I'm always a little horrified when I'm just driving around and sometimes have our local public station, public radio station on KQED, and they'll have some eminent person who'll not be an expert in Buddhism, but say something about it. And they nearly always say something like, well, in Buddhism they say uh, it's all about suffering, life is suffering. And I kind of wince every time I hear that because it's not that the Buddha says life is suffering. What he says is that opening to suffering, knowing the truth of suffering, actually leads to freedom and happiness. And that's the counterintuitive part. And what I've really been impressed with uh, these it being on this retreat with you, is how many of you are seeing that wisdom for yourself, really recognizing that opening to suffering, the truth of suffering, not resisting it, not denying it, is actually a doorway to a huge amount of freedom and letting go. We can know this for ourselves. And that working with the Kalesas, again, it's, it can sound kind of gloomy, you know, greed, aversion, and delusion over and over again. How many times have we talked about it? But to really recognize that these are forces within us, these, and that they are the direct obstacles to our peace and happiness, that we need to lessen those forces, decrease the force of them, so that happiness can actually arise then quite naturally and spontaneously. But it's only through the willingness to recognize that these forces are there and often controlling us. And so, as I said, the Buddha's teachings, our practice, can often seem counterintuitive. The practice of generosity so important, but we see in actually letting go through that generosity, we receive far more than we give. We sit still to find freedom. We renounce and find actually abundance. Or in our meta practice, we open to the pain of a closed heart and find that it actually increases our capacity to love. This willingness to um, go in this, what can seem counterintuitive direction that's always turning back into our direct experience that's more the way to find happiness, not chasing some ideal that society tells us is out there. And you can, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, I gave a, a whole talk on delusion because I see it as such a core issue in this misguided thinking we have about how we really don't know what brings us happiness. And one of the themes in that talk was a pointer to delusion called. What Was I Thinking? You know, you can just know if you hear yourself saying that, that delusion was properly at work. Well, just this past... The New Yorker that I'm currently reading, it's probably from a couple of weeks ago, had a whole article titled What Was I Thinking? (laughs) And it was actually a book review of a number of books that are coming out now, written by economists. And what economists are doing are actually looking at the irrational way most of us make choices about the whole area of our finances and our lives and things that you know we need to do on the practical realm to support ourselves. And kind of the bizarre um, uh, matching of that with economic theory, which is always very rational and precise and assumes that we are rational and precise. And as the author of the article says, it isn't that we should try to be logical, that seems to be impossible, it is that we should give up thinking that economic policies should be logical, because the two just don't match. And so it's a whole, the review just pulls out some of the findings of these books that have been written about how bad we are at making rational or wise decisions about, especially our finances, but really it's much broader than that. And one book is called Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions by this guy, Dan Ariely. And he writes, Our irrational behaviors are neither random nor senseless. They are systematic. We all make the same mistakes over and over again. So attached are we to certain kinds of errors, he contends, that we are incapable of even recognizing them. errors. Does that kind of sound familiar? This is not just about saving and how we spend our credit cards but really how we relate to our lives and as we open to our experience in meditation we begin to see these fundamental errors in our thinking again about ways that we might find happiness and what actually causes us suffering. And these Errors of thinking are so uh, embedded in us, we don't even recognize them. Like uh, the error of there's a permanent self, Sakaya Ditti that Guy has mentioned briefly, personality view, taking all this to be me and mine that I should have control over and that somehow is going to provide me some lasting sense of satisfaction. Most of the time, before we start looking, we don't even question that as a belief. Or our conditioned habits that we're so used to playing out, we don't see there's an option. They're just what we do as we move into judging or depression or anger or grief. We don't see that these are actually habits. They're errors of judgment that, that there's a possibility of correcting. So a lot of our practice is recalibrating, is trying to make sense in some much more fundamental way of our experience so we learn what actually brings true happiness, what actually causes us suffering. One of the, This article lists many different experiments just briefly that they did and they're all kind of fascinating and you kind of think, oh I wouldn't do that, but You know you probably would if you were the subject of one of these experiments. And here's one that they did, and it it says that they had no, um, I was going to say shame, they they, uh, were very wide-ranging in who they decided to experiment on. And one was at Halloween time, experimenting on kids who came to trick or treat. So here's what this guy Dan Ariely did. He laid in a supply of Hershey's Kisses and two kinds of Snickers bars regular two ounce bars and one ounce miniatures. When the first children came to his door, he handed each of them three kisses, which for those of you who don't know, very small little chocolates individually wrapped, but quite tiny, three three kisses, then offered to make a deal. If they wanted to, the kids could trade one kiss for a mini Snickers or two kisses for a full-sized bar. Almost all of them took the deal and proving their skills at Sugar Maximizers, (laughs) opted for the two kiss trade. At some point, Ariely shifted the terms. The kids could now trade one of their three kisses for a larger bar or get a mini Snickers without giving up anything. In terms of sheer chocolatiness, the trade for the larger bar was still by far the better deal. But faced with the prospect of getting a mini Snickers for nothing, the trick-or-treaters could no longer reckon properly. (laughs) Most of them refused the trade, even though it cost them candy. Ariely speculates that the behind the kids' miscalculation was anxiety. As he puts it, there is no visible possibility of loss when we choose a free item. It's free. Tellingly, when Ariely performed a similar experiment on adults, they made the same mistake. (laughs) And he says, if I were to distill the one main lesson from the research described in this book, it is that we are all pawns in a game whose forces we largely fail to comprehend. But I think the Buddha had comprehended these forces, perhaps you might have a sense too, the forces of greed, aversion, and desire. There are what is at work in this instance and in all of the places where we make these wrong decisions, when we choose something because we think it will do it for us or it's the better thing, the right thing, and it's not coming from real wisdom. And I could just see in this little description, and as he said, these forces that we don't comprehend, the wheel of dependent origination just keeping going round and round and round because we don't see that movement of craving that then forms into all of the the solidification that goes on to, to end in more suffering. And we do that again and again and again. So our Practice is to wake up to these underlying causes, is to see these forces directly, immediately for ourselves so we know them. Because, you know, as I said, when I read these um, descriptions of these experiments, I, I, you know, you kind of want to convince yourself that you wouldn't make those decisions. But you have to know, unless there's some underlying wisdom there, you probably would. And so we need to really work on this in our direct immediate experience. So it's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just we should be more rational about this. We need to know directly for ourselves where to find freedom, how to find happiness. Over the course of the weeks here together, we've talked about many of the Buddha's lists that point in this direction of more freedom and more happiness. And I wanna specifically focus on one tonight because it's so comprehensive in its view. And that's the list of the paramis or the 10 perfections, these beautiful qualities of heart and mind that we can cultivate. And the list is generosity, dana in Pali, virtue, sila, renunciation, nekama, wisdom, panya, energy, virya. Patience, Kanti. Truthfulness, Satya, Determination, aditana; Loving-kindness, Metta. And equanimity, Upeka. And these ten qualities are said to be qualities that the Buddha himself developed in his path of practice on his way to becoming a fully enlightened being, as he was what's known as a Bodhisattva, someone who was working his way towards Buddhahood It's not talked that much about in the suttas. The Buddha mentions all of these qualities again and again as very important, very essential, but not so much putting together as a list. But they've been collected in what are known as the Jataka tales. And these are tales that have, have come to be told that are meant to represent... Um, all of these different past lives that the Buddha had and how he perfected these qualities. And so there's these wonderful, inspiring tales of him cultivating qualities of patience or truthfulness or or energy. But it's, it's not so much in the, the the traditional sutta teachings. But it's very much in our tradition, the, the, the practice of cultivating the paramis and this aspiration of the bodhisattva. It's often more... Um, uh, spoken with or associated with the Mahayana tradition. They have really taken this teaching and these practices and and made them very central to their tradition. But it's very much there in the Theravada tradition. And because we find these qualities so wide-ranging and so useful for us to cultivate, we consider them very helpful to work with and practice with. And one of the ways which they're very helpful is that many of the lists we talk about relate more specifically to our formal meditation practice, to this practice of insight and sitting down and and being in our experience. The qualities of the paramis are essential to cultivate on our spiritual path in our formal spiritual practice. But many, if not all of them, are also beautiful qualities that we can actively cultivate in daily life. So they have this blend that's really very wonderful. And what I saw as I was contemplating this list and and sort of feeling into these different qualities is how each one of them specifically is an antidote to the calaises an antidote to these forces of greed, aversion, and delusion, either very specifically, very directly countering it, or just through the perfection, through the practice of this quality, naturally lessening these forces of delusion in our mind. And so this process is what we're doing all the time as we diminish and work with and let go of these forces of delusion we're naturally cultivating these beautiful and wholesome qualities in the mind and heart, the paramis, of the brahmaviharas, of all of the the beautiful qualities that we've spoken a lot about. So you could take any one of them and find that this balancing, this development would be happening, but if you take all ten, it's a powerful list. It's an amazing list. It's so broad and far-reaching, in all the different ways it would impact our understanding in our life. Sylvia Borstein, uh, one of our, we just had lunch with her today, one of our good friends and colleagues, and she usually teaches this retreat, says that each of the paramis really includes all of the others and can be restated using the characteristics of the other paramis in their definition, that each parami is a hologram for the other, each, par- each parami represents all of the other qualities, and I think it's really helpful to see that, the, the richness of them. She's actually written a whole book on them, and her book is called Pay Attention for Goodness' Sake. And I think Sylvia's cornered the market on catchy book titles. She should <laughs> make a living out of it. They're all really good. Just how she, it's the pith essence of what the teaching is about. So this list of ten, we've spoken a lot about already, different ones, so I'll skip over those and even, you know, the others. I don't have time to do them all, but we'll just kind of do some highlights because um, they're so essential for us to to work with in our practice. The first of the paramis is dana, generosity. And it's actually the first in many lists, there's a number of lists where the Buddha begins with that practice. Because I hope you can see just as you feel into that quality of generosity, how directly it's acting as an antidote for the kalesas, for greed, aversion, and delusion. It's the the, um, opposite of the second noble truth. The cause of our suffering is grasping. It's the opposite of that. It's letting go, it's giving letting go of self-centered desire. They often say, if you're angry with someone, give them a gift and see how it, it's so hard to maintain that anger when you're actively thinking about what could I give this person and then go through with that action. So really clear to see with this first one. And then, of course, it cultivates wisdom, counterbalances delusion, because we have to feel into what's appropriate. What's right in this situation? So, just I want to keep emphasizing this the richness of the paramis, how they're directly lessening these forces of suffering in the mind. This quality of generosity is such a beautiful experience to feel it in ourselves, to see others express it, to be the recipient of it. And the Buddha actually actively encouraged us to be happy about generosity to be happy about contemplating being generous to be happy while we're being generous and this particularly the last one we're not so good at to be happy reflecting on our generosity how often have you done a generous act and someone has complimented on you on it and you say oh that was nothing anyone would have done that you know it was just what needed to be done instead of really enjoying that beauty of that act of of offering, of letting go, whatever it was. And I'm sure we've all had many experiences of generosity, of being the recipients of generosity. For me, a time when I really felt this um, so deeply was when Guy and I first arrived here, and now it's getting to 20 years ago, He might have already said something about this. We arrived in, we'd lived in England for five years and we arrived here in California. I didn't know anyone, he knew a few people. We had a backpack each and five boxes. They were out the sum of our worldly possessions. And because he had a few contacts and, and we sort of got connected with what was Spirit Rock then, which was nothing very much, wasn't even called that, there was nothing here on the land at all. Um, we met a network of people, and they were so generous to us, offering us places to stay when we needed it, giving us furniture that wasn't just sort of throw, you know, throw stuff, but really nice things, many of which we actually still have. And really that sense of, of being taken care of. And um, as part of our act of generosity, we started volunteering there at Spirit Rock, Guy quickly got a job um, in the computer industry, but I stayed with Spirit Rock and went from a volunteer to part-time to full-time, eventually became uh, the director of the whole place. It was much smaller than it is now. I'm often very happy that I'm no longer (laughs) responsible for all of this. But at that time, you know, there was a few of us here working, and it was amazing to be the recipient of so much generosity from other people their time, their service, and often very uh, much their finances. At one point, we were were running pretty much by the skin of our teeth back then, and we had more debts, well, more outstanding um, expenses. We had a plan to pay them, but they were coming due, and we had a note on the land. It was like a balloon payment. And when I got the job and started looking at this, I was kind of like, has anyone kind of realized that in six months we need nearly $200,000 to pay for the land? And they're kind of like, oh, yeah, what should we do? And so we just sent out a letter to a handful of people, really. You know, we didn't have a big donor list at that point and just laid out the truth of this. It wasn't a very skillful fundraising attempt, but that's what we did, and just waited and see and went on with our business, and then one day Mary Ann, who still works here, was opening envelopes, the mail that had come in that day, and in one envelope was a check for the exact amount we needed, saying, we got your letter, we knew it was needed, and so we sent it, and it was like, just such an example of, we having a lot of faith in the Dharma that something like this would happen, I mean, but... And that it did. It was just amazing. But one of the things I like to emphasize about Donna and generosity is that for this cycle to keep going, for this expression of the heart to happen, there has to be a giver and a receiver. And that it is as much our practice to receive generosity as it is to offer it. And so, again, if any of you, if anyone ever offers you as simple as a compliment, instead of brushing it off, to be able to say, "Well, thank you," you know that means something to me that you appreciate that. Even about as simple as something you might be wearing or some small act you gave, you did. I found this great story that emphasizes this um, this quality. It's called "Even Her Taking Was Giving." And it's, it's, it's from the Jewish tradition, Jewish tales of holy women. This is it. Haya Schechter was a pious woman whose home in Tel Aviv was open to all, like the, like the legendary home of Abraham and Sarah. There was never a day when she and her husband did not have guests. Rabbis, Rebbes, and simple people alike all ate at their table, and everyone was treated like a king or a queen. Some guests lived in the house for months at a time, sometimes there were 10 such guests, at other times as many as 30, and all of them were made to feel as if they were in their own home. Haya was always ready to give everything she had to another human being. She had reached perfection in kindness, and her giving was done wholeheartedly and joyfully. Another aspect of her perfection in kindness was reported by one of her sons, who said that her mo- his mother had once sent him to borrow some money from a neighbor. When he returned with the money in hand, she took the envelope with the money in it from him, from him, placed it somewhere, and never even opened it. Her son asked, "'Mother, why did you borrow the money "'if you didn't want to use it?' "'I did it,' she explained, "'so that our neighbor won't be ashamed "'to borrow from us when he's in need.'" And it's just an example. We need to keep this cycle going so that that parami can be perfected by others as well as ourselves. So, of course, there are many ways to practice this parami of generosity. As I said, often it's financial, as we give to all these worthy causes. But I think even more important is what we do with our time, how we express that generosity to our friends, to our family, and of course to places like Spirit Rock that wouldn't exist without so many people so selflessly giving of their time and energy to do all the things that need to happen. But as we contemplate this, again the other parami of wisdom needs to come in. It's not about giving everything away or giving until we're exhausted of never being able to say no. We need to be balanced in this But I really see if I have the impulse to give and I know it's a true and generous gift, that it's coming from a, a real place of clarity, then to follow through with that. I very rarely, I don't think I've ever regretted that. You probably know that beautiful line from the Buddha. If you knew as I know the power of giving, you would not let a single meal pass without sharing some of it and really to see how this practice of generosity gladdens the heart. It is a direct doorway to happiness as we let go, but it's also a practice of wisdom. And I really see, again, in reframing or looking at the parami of generosity, we practice the Four Noble Truths when we practice generosity. We understand suffering the first noble truth, there's someone who needs something, someone who's in want. We abandon the cause of suffering, which is holding on, or tanha, clinging, craving, and we let go, we offer, we give. And then we experience the freedom of letting go, the third noble truth. And in doing all these, we are cultivating the path of wisdom, of Panya. The second of these paramis is ethical conduct, sila in Pali, sometimes translated as virtue, and not a quality that our culture puts a lot of emphasis on, not a quality that gets talked about a lot. Is actually so much emphasis on the opposite of, you know, getting what you want and self-expression and doing what feels good. We don't like to hear about this what can seem like a limiting quality, a limiting expression. But this is a huge area for us as serious practitioners to explore uh, because it's about how we live our lives. And there's a term for this practice in general that I love. It's called ahimsa. It means non-harming. And when we live an ethical or virtuous life, that's what we're doing. We're practicing ahimsa, or non-harming. And we can see how that is, again, in the way the paramis interlock, a gift gift of generosity. We offer people a sense of safety as we practice seela, as we practice non-harming. And it's not about commandments or thou shalt do this and not do that, really to see the practice of non-harming of the precepts as a training that we're learning from, them, we're being informed by them, not dogmatically adhering to them. And that we need to assess each different situation and see what's called forth from us. And to see that they are actually a source of great contentment, ease, and well-being They're not a constriction. The Dalai Lama has some great writings on this. He has a whole book called Ethics for the New Millennium highlighting the importance of this quality. So I'll just read what he says about this. Consider the following. We humans are social beings. We come into the world as the result of others' actions. We survive here in dependence on others, Whether we like it or not, there is hardly a moment of our lives when we do not benefit from others' activities. For this reason, it is hardly surprising that most of our happiness arises in the context of our relationships with others. Nor is it so remarkable that our greatest joy should come when we are motivated by concern for others. But that is not all. We find that not only do altruistic actions bring about happiness but they also lessen our experience of suffering here i am not suggesting that individuals that the individual whose actions are motivated by the wish to bring others happiness necessarily meets with less misfortune than one who does not sickness old age mishaps of one sort or another are the same for us all but the sufferings which undermine our internal peace anxiety Doubt, disappointment, these things are definitely less. In our concern for others, we worry less about ourselves. When we worry less about ourselves, an experience of our own suffering is less intense. What does this tell us? Firstly, because our every action has a universal dimension, a potential impact on others' happiness. Ethics are necessary as a means to ensure that we do not harm others. Secondly, it tells us that genuine happiness consists in those spiritual qualities of love, compassion, patience, tolerance, and forgiveness, and so on. For it is those which provide both for our happiness and others' happiness. So to really see how and again this almost counterintuitive that as we take care in this way and offer this care for others we increase our own contentment and well-being i can remember so clearly my first retreat in india in the early 80s and my you know my experiences on it i don't remember the content of a lot of the talks and i actually don't even know if there was a specific talk on sila, on ethical behavior. But at the time I was living in India and I was living actually with my sister, my younger sister. We'd been traveling together for a long time, maybe about six months. And then we ended up living for about six months in in, um, McLeod, Gunge, where the Dalai Lama lives. I'd gone away for this retreat. She was sick at the time and couldn't come. And when I came back, I always remember her telling me a little while later after my return, Yes, that retreat really made a difference in you. You were actually nice to me for about two weeks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you could sort of say, well, two weeks, it's not very long, but actually it was quite a, a step to be nice to my younger sister in a way that she really felt that difference. And I could see that even though I wasn't consciously trying to practice anything, my inner sensitivity... And that respect that was deepening in me for the impact I have on others actually changed our relationship for that time. I'm hoping that over time she would say I'm much nicer to her on a continuous basis now, but this was 20 years ago. Two weeks was pretty good. (laughs) So to see Sila really not as a constriction, but as a protection, and out of practicing it, we get to experience that beautiful quality or experience called the bliss of blamelessness. It really eases those torments of mind of remorse or regret or you know, anxiety that comes out of not acting so skillfully. The next quality, the first two being generosity and then sila, we go into renunciation And again, I really see the weaving together that these aren't separate. And renunciation, of course, the direct counterbalance to the force of craving that is so much the source of our suffering. Renunciation, nekama in Pali. Again, like virtue, not so popular. Not many sexy stories on renunciation in People magazine these days. But because we think that it's about giving up having less, being diminished in some way. If we really look into this quality of renunciation, again, can see it as a deep source of happiness that can come out of a natural letting go that isn't some sense of loss. Dingo Kense Rinpoche says, renunciation implies a strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. With this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. So again, to see in this letting go, there's actually, we receive so much more than we give up. And it's a way to happiness, not a deprivation. What's happening here, what Dingo Kensei is talking about, is this quality of Nibida. I mentioned it just briefly the other day. It's one of the sequences, in the sequence of transcendent-dependent origination that is this um, progress we can take from starting from suffering through faith and these positive qualities like joy and rapture and uh, contentment, tranquility, Nibida disenchantment, is a turning point on that um, trajectory where we actually turn to the wisdom factors. We see that even those beautiful qualities of mind, we have to let go of and open to the deeper truths. And when we see that out there, there isn't something that will give us happiness, just like I was talking about in the beginning, this is that quality of Nibida. We actually give up looking for happiness out there. I was talking about this quality when I gave a talk on Transcendent Dependent Arising at the three-month course, and I was trying to think of examples that would very simply convey how Nibida isn't about giving up, throwing away, not wanting, but it's when we see that what we thought made us happy actually doesn't. And the example I came up with, I don't know how good it is, but it's like for those of us that grew up watching too many TV sitcoms, sitcoms from age about however old on, you know, 8, 10, 12, where you'd come home from school and just turn on a few hours of television. And, you know, I remembered Get Smart and Gilligan's Island and all of those things. That was happiness then. What would you say if someone said, now you have to sit down and watch two hours of reruns of Gilligan's Island <laughs> or Get Smart? For those of you who don't know, I won't try to tell you what they're about. But, yeah. But so I told this story, and I got this great note the next day from a yogi who said, you know, I had to share this with you. It was a haiku that he'd written. And at this retreat, we had a bhikkhu, a monk, sitting. So it was, he wrote it during that So the haiku was, The monk coughs, breaking my one-pointed focus on a get-smart rerun. <laughs> and I just thought it was such a great combination of how we can be so lost in that, so lost in that. But not true happiness, I assure you. Ajahn Amaro has been, uh, who ha- leads a monastery up at Abayagiri, uh, as a monk, as a, as a natural renunciate, has a lot to say about it. And I, he, this was in the latest Inquiring Mind He said, when you relinquish control and take on the simplicity of the renunciate life, you have an opportunity to reflect on all of the things to which you've become habituated. You take on restrictions in order to contact the most profound dimension of your own nature. If you're continually seeking comfort or trying to arrange the material world to meet your preferences, then you don't notice those areas of bondage and attachment, and they remain barriers to accessing the fundamental, unconditioned nature of the mind. So again, really using this, not as a deprivation, but to work with our interior experience in a very direct and immediate way. And as lay people, we don't have those taken up external... um, renunciations of monks and nuns, 237 or 256 rules. So we need to explore this area to see if it's a place to actually find freedom, to see if it's a place that can add richness to our lives instead of thinking that it's going to come out of more and more accumulation. And also in this day and age, it's, it's really our responsibility to look at the way we live our lives, given the state of the environment. Carbon footprint, you know, I can't be happier that this term is becoming more and more common. You know, I hate to tell you, we just had the Oscars, one of the things that maybe you had some grasping for or some nibida about, Mm -hmm. not needing to know who wore what. What are you wearing? (laughs) I I love that question. No, who are you wearing, they say. It's like, who am I wearing? (laughs) The total Sakaya ditti, Talk about personality view. Uh, what was my thought on that? Oh. <laughs> I got lost. It was a carbon-neutral Oscars, supposedly. So there we go. It's getting into the mainstream. This is part of our responsibility in being custodians of this planet is this quality of renunciation and how we can live more skillfully. The next few qualities, um, we've already spoken a lot about wisdom and energy. Heather gave a whole talk on the, the factors of enlightenment and balancing um, these qualities. The next one that I'll talk on is patience. Kanti. Again, you know, I can really see I'm saying the same thing about all of them that the society doesn't tell us to cultivate patience it tells us to get it now and want more of it as much as possible it's not doesn't have too many positive connotations for me when i first would think about patience it was really about all the things i wanted but couldn't have or that archetypal image of driving somewhere with the family in the station wagon are we there yet no just you know sit back and wait another 2 hours or whatever it is but you may have noticed on retreat it's a quality we need to cultivate as the days and the hours and the weeks go by. Just that sense of willingness to keep coming back and keep staying present because there is nothing that can seem longer like a walking period where we're restless and wanting it to end. Have you noticed that? You look, at you watch, it must be nearly over and five minutes have gone by. This quality of patience allows us to be present, fully present with what's actually happening in our experience. It's, it's such a beautiful quality. It's considered really close to wisdom. It's an expression of equanimity. All of these wise, beautiful qualities are, are, are cultivated when we're truly practicing patience. It's not just about tolerance or forbearance, though you can sometimes feel that because it recognizes that our experience may be a little difficult. But true patience actually allows us to meet it whatever's happening fully with some degree of acceptance. Again, quoting from Sharon in her beautiful book, a heart, Sharon Salzberg, A Heart as wide, the, wide as the World. True patience is constancy, the consistent willingness to see the moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear this with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it'll be over by then and something better will come along. Patience isn't dour and it is not unhappy. It is a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. The Buddha called it, talked about it as being both the highest austerity, so there's renunciation, but also the highest form of devotion. I love that, the highest form of devotion, because with patience we let our heart rest into whatever is happening and give ourselves to it completely. I really experience it as a full-body experience, we have to be there in every cell for patients to truly arise. Not, you know, I'll kind of put my little toe in or, you know, hold back a little bit, but really there with it. It brings so many benefits. With patients, we see the changing nature of experience, the wisdom can arise. We see that if we resist something, we'll suffer. And we begin to see this process of arising and passing of dependent origination that I spoke about. So it really is a practice of being present and allowing us to open to and love this mystery that we live in all the time because we're there for it. We're open to it through this beautiful quality of patience truthfulness is the next parami heather gave a whole talk on because it's so important for us both the truthfulness in our speech the way we interact with others but even more important this inner truthfulness that she spoke about so beautifully the next quality is determination or aditana this is that quality of endurance that enables us to continue we all know retreats are difficult. Day after day, the challenges in mind and body, the renunciation of being here and giving up, the comforts of home, the, the body aching, the mind resisting, the, the, the experiences that come up from the past, the worry about the future. We need determination to keep going in the face of those, in the, from sitting to sitting, to get up in the morning, all of this requires determination, but it's a quality that needs to be in balance. As Heather said in one of her talks, I remember, it has to be possible. Whatever it is we're making a determination to do, we have to have this faith or trust that it's doable, and then we can bring this quality fully to bear. So it can be operating moment to moment in our you know, willingness to be there and experience to sit to sit a little longer, to walk more diligently, to bring more continuity to our practice. We can also bring this quality of resolution or determination to our understanding, to actually arouse a determination, the aditana, to really be with some experience. May I see into the depths of this, see the heart of this or the root of this, whether it's about something very personal or the Four Noble Truths, or the cause of suffering. We can actually make a resolve to see into that, and it can be a really helpful way to practice. May I know this? May I see this truly? Really helpful. I found this beautiful little uh, uh, gata from the Terigata, the sayings of the elder monks at the time of the Buddha. It's too cold, too hot, too late in the evening, People who say this, shirking their work, the moment passes them by. Whoever regards cold and heat as no more than grass, doing their duties won't fall away from ease. With my chest, I push through wild grasses, spear grass, ribbon, ribbon grass, rushes, cultivating a secluded, gl- secluded heart. I just love that. It's too Even back then, it's too cold, it's too hot too late in the evening to practice. If you say this, you'll fall by the wayside. But I push through wild grasses, spear grass, ribbon grass, rushes, cultivating a secluded heart. The next two beautiful qualities are metta and upeka. Again, we've given whole talks on these. We've spoken about so much. So, I'll just begin to close with just some reflections on all of the qualities as we can develop, the qualities of generosity. I'll read them actually all through, and as I say them, just see if there's any resonance in you about these qualities. Places where you feel they're somewhat developed, places where you feel you don't, they're, they're there, but you know. They could be brought more to fruition, and perhaps some that you haven't yet even turned your attention to generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness determination, loving-kindness, equanimity. These are qualities we can all develop. (coughs) We have that potential. We are developing them. It can seem like a lot to take on, but someone today, just today in an interview, gave me such a beautiful analogy, description of this last quality of equanimity, She said she imagined a hawk soaring. You know, when they hover, the wind is raging and the hawk hovers there in perfect stillness. That's possible for all of us as the winds of our life rage around us to find these qualities and develop them. They're there within each of us. I'm just in the middle of reading this great book, Called Three Cups of Tea. Many of you may know it. It's about this guy written partly by him, but with a a co-author, Greg Mortenson. And his story is that he was a very experienced mountain climber and made an attempt on K2. It's I think the second highest mountain in the world in Pakistan. Very rugged mountain. And it was a failed attempt. And actually up, ended up with, I don't think anyone died, but a lot of people severely injured and they had to carry people down. And he just got so depleted that he could barely make his way down off the mountain. And in coming down, he kept getting lost. And in one t- one time he got lost, he was taken in by these villagers in Pakistan, way up in the foothills of the Himalayas, who just took him in and showered him with so much kindness and and care that he was completely moved. And as he spent some days with them and saw how they lived their lives, life of, talk about renunciation and, and, and simplicity, and saw so the children were being schooled, the remnants or whatever there was of a school was this rock shelf out in the elements higher up above the village. And he made this determination, he made this Aditana that he would come back to this village and build them a school. And the villagers said, well, that's very nice, but a lot of people have said they'll come back and help us. We'll see you when we see you. And he was determined to follow through on this promise. And so he went back knowing nothing about fundraising, knowing nothing about building schools, and there's just a whole chapters on all the misguided ways he (laughs) went about trying to raise money and... he, he didn't know about computers, so he wrote 580 letters by hand, each one. He didn't even think of photocopying them. He wrote them all out and just mailed them off and waited till something came back. But somehow, through this process, as I read the book, I saw all of these qualities of the paramis being developed in him, of patience, of just taking the time it needed to raise the money, dollar by dollar, penny by penny, of energy he was so committed determination he just didn't give up and it was out of this sense of generosity and kindness and metta and also equanimity he went he finally got back to pakistan he had enough money he he bought everything he needed to build the school and loaded it in one truck was in a big city and then drove the truck up but then realized there was no way to get to this village because there was no real road. The road had been blocked by avalanches. So he took everything off the truck. The truck had to go back to the big town. And somehow someone who was supposedly helping him said, let me store all this stuff somewhere safely for you and squirreled squirreled it away. So he didn't know where it was. And he had to just keep going. Where is that stuff? Give it back to me. Give it back to me. Give it back to me. And he wouldn't take no. It was just amazing to see what he did. And all through this development of this paramis, he was transformed. People said, this man was just amazing in the qualities that he expressed, that that they were just touched. Tom Brokaw actually wrote as a little thing, blurb, this book is thrilling proof that one ordinary person with the right combination of character and and determination really can change the world. Because as he's educating these young people, He's educating a whole village in the values of tolerance and acceptance and broadening their horizons and really impacting huge numbers of people through all of these qualities of the paramis that he has been cultivating. But the book clearly shows he's not perfect. He annoys people. He gets frustrated. He doesn't share very well. He says, only I can do it. In a way, it's kind of true because he speaks fluent um, Urdu or whatever it is they speak. But he's impacted so many people's lives through his willingness to keep cultivating these qualities and moving forward and sharing and offering of his heart. We all have that potential. Don't limit yourself. Don't think, I can't do that. Right there in front of you is an opportunity to be kind, to be generous, to show determination, to give up something, to express your true wisdom. It's right there, not distant. And I found this poem a little while ago, and even though I wasn't quite sure how it related to the Paramis, somehow there was something in it that just spoke to this place where we feel our limitations but we want to go beyond them. It's called The More Loving One by W. H. Auden. Looking up at the stars, I know quite well that for all they care, I could go to hell. But on earth, indifference is the least we have to dread from man or beast. How should we like it were the stars to burn with a passion for us we could not return? If equal affection cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Admirer as I think I am of stars that do not give a damn. I cannot, now I see them, say I missed one terribly all day. Were all stars to disappear or die, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime, though this might take me a little time. So let's just sit for a moment. Were all stars to disappear or die, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime, though this might take me a little time.